Hello friends, my name is Steve and we are here today for the Page Chewing Friday Conversation and tonight our guest is author Michael Sisko. Michael, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming by and hanging out with us on a Friday night. Mm -hmm. Thanks for making time. So for people who aren't familiar with your work, uh, how would you describe your work and what you do? Um, well, I've been writing novels for a while now and while they've sort of undergone a sort of development over time. Generally, uh, I try to write the weirdest stuff I can think of, but I don't like the sort of writing that's weird for its own sake or that just is weird just for the sake of, of being kooky. Like I want there to be at least some kind of emotional center to the story, some sort of reason why you're reading it. So um, yeah, kind of surreal, dreamlike, um, often horrific, some fantasy. Um, so I move around. I use a lot of different genre elements just, uh, you know, to, to satisfy me. And I draw on, on literary models as well. I try to read pretty widely and steal tricks from everywhere I can find them. Anybody knows what they're doing. I want to know how they do it. So in case I want to do it myself. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've written Books that are uh, typically the I, the only other thing I would just say generally is that I pay a lot of attention to style. I want the text to have a distinct flavor. Um, I want it to have, have a distinct sound. Um, I like to play around with the words on the page a bit so that they it's not just sort of about something, but it's doing something or it is something. So it feels alive in your hands. That's the kind of thing. Ever since Grover said, don't turn the page in the book with the monsters, uh, uh, I was I was always responding to any book that talked back to you or that felt like it knew you were reading it and was aware of that and playing with that. That I, I can never get enough of that sort of thing. So in a way, I try to do that with most or all of my books. And you mentioned you look for for inspirations and for tricks and other other books. What's the most surprising place you found a trick to use in? Ooh, surprising. Um, <laughs> I guess in like uh, really, really dry academic philosophical books or, you know, things like Spinoza or Kant, you know, because um, uh, just my particular academic interests took me in that direction. And reading them, especially with Kant, initially it's so dry and so complicated, you just can't follow it. You just want to, you just have to kind of go with it for a while and see if you can get the gist of it. And what I found was that over time, it's not that I was necessarily understanding it better, but I was getting this kind of perverse enjoyment about just how dry, how technical it could be, like how, how you could just sustain the boredom for so long and you could just talk about these really dry as dust, like you really dry, like you think you've read dry, like this is dry. And so then the idea is, well, if you can make that self-aware and funny or, or you can play with that now, it becomes interesting. And suddenly I get this appetite to read Kant. I want to read more Kant. I'm starting to get off on how, how kind of, te not tedious it is, but like the, it, just the dryness, the abstractness, it starts to get appealing. So things like that and textbooks and legal documents and things like that, contracts, just looking for a way to, because there's something, um, if you can make a, like contractual language funny or banker's language funny or 
or terms of service language funny just by not by lampooning it and just sticking goofy clowns all over it but like getting into the language and doing it and turning it against itself and warping it then everybody recognizes what you're doing right away and they start they love it it's just because it, it's 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 turning that language back on itself and sort of weaponizing its its tedium and its bore and its complexity against its own purposes and then that becomes sort of then it becomes enjoyable so I guess that's the most surprising place. It, you know, I wouldn't have gone, thought I would have been uh, literarily influenced by this sort of thing. And um, I am insofar as I tamper with it and vandalize it but or use it to my own ends. But uh, it, it is an influence, I have to say. PLIC, you're who you doing soon. Oh, sorry, it's my mic. Sorry, it's my mic. Getting feedback here. Feedback here. Sorry, is that better? I can hear you. I'm not sure what the feedback is, but... Yeah, it's not on my end. I can hear you just fine. I only have this one window open, so not really sure. Is that better? Okay. So, yeah, I guess my question is, Michael, like, is it important to have humor and be funny in horror? Like, is that like a, a attention release? Is that like, is that a, like a necessity you believe for, uh, you know, something that can be, you know, potentially be like gruesome or something really psychologically disturbing to have that humorous element in, in horror? Yeah, I think it, that's a tricky question, but I think, um, I wouldn't say you have to have it. I think I've read horror stories that aren't, that don't have any humor in them, but certainly if you have a longer anything long you can't sustain the same tone indefinitely people just get tired you need a break and then you you know so things need to calm down so you can start to ramp them back up again because people run out of stamina for the feeling and humor can definitely do that and also i think humor creeps in because it's a way of protecting yourself against making it too scary you know like if i'm just interested in being terrified i can go watch documentaries about human beings doing awful things to each other that are totally real this really happened and it's like that's scary but it's not fun i don't enjoy it that's not what i so sometimes when a horror movie or a story winks at you or makes jokes um you know that's its way of diffusing the of letting you know this is all in fun uh, or sometimes it's about characterization you know the funny characters are going to be more sympathetic characters they might be more relatable it's a great way to get efficiently into someone's point of view by seeing what they think is funny so as a characterization instrument, it's it's interesting. But like, if you look at those all the franchise killer movies, like the like the first Nightmare movie was a pretty serious horror movie. By the time you get to five and six, I mean it's it's just he's it's they're comedies. They're basically just grisly comedies uh, where Freddy Krueger is a comedic character who's cracking jokes. And there's a sometimes I think we like to domesticate the villain. Like in the first movie is scary, but then as we start to like the villain, now we're kind of sort of rooting for the villain a little bit, and we make friends with him, and he does, well, he wouldn't kill me, or something like, he's like my buddy now, and we're on a better, pay. We I understand where he's coming from, and so the, the humor there, it can be a way of, of altering your relationship to the story, so then now it's about an anti-hero, or, or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, the Haunting of Hill House isn't a book that's like knee slapping funny. It's a very effective horror story. Um, 
there are moments in the story where you see foreshadowing happen. And sometimes when you have that knowing feeling, that can make you laugh a little bit. That's a different kind of laugh, though. That's that sort of a... Uh, <laughs> I know what that's going to be. That's sort of knowing in advance or that understanding the foreshadowing, the seeing it before it happens, the knowing more than the characters. That plays in... That can also play into it. So it's, I think it's it's complex. I like, like humor just because I like humor and... Um, I don't, but some of the stuff I write can be, I can write pretty grim also. So I guess it would feel weird to exclude it and to say no jokes. You know, that feels sort of like there's a whole dimension of human life that I'm ignoring now and why. Um, so, but whether it's essential, I think it depends on what you're trying to do. I think if you're Stephen Graham Jones, you're going to want to have some humor mixed in there. And in some ways, it's going to make the horror more effective. I think that may be it. It makes the horror more effective very often. Um, whether it's dark humor or it's irony or it's the funny character dying where you feel it more. Um, or if the, you know, if the villain, you want to show the villain has a point, so you give him a good joke or two. And you say, well, he does have a point. And, you know, that dynamic keeps things from getting to be too flat, too stale, too pat. So... I guess that was a kind of an all-over-the-place answer, but it's because humor is, is it just you can't put it in a box. It's so much bigger than comedy as a label. It's just you see it in, in Westerns and science fiction. You see it in fantasy. You see it all over the place. So it's like we're not human if we're not making jokes in a way. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's, it's one of those things where um, it's – I think you hit the nail on the head that for me as a writer and a reader – Humor is one of those things that it's just part of life the same way, you know, romance and sex and, you know, mm -hmm. problems. It's, it's all intertwined in that, you know, this makes something realistic because it's an element of life and thus in fiction you include it. Like yeah. naturally, organically, it's just part of, you know, of everyone's life, right? It's one of those common commonalities, those common elements. So, yes. um, but yeah. I, I personally love when, um, you know, and I haven't read extensively the amount of horse someone like steve has but i have read 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 some and certainly some of the some of the really popular writers like stephen king and dean coots and stuff and i love when they put in something really ironic funny mm -hmm. just for me it just breaks up the tension too and i i like that i like that element but also because it is part of you know life right cracking mm -hmm. a joke um and especially something like the black humor dark humor um, you know, I really appreciate that because, you know, it can be, you know, funny as hell, first of all, right? And uh, I think because of my job and the kind of jobs I've had, that that's just a real, um, you know, that's a real aspect of, of, of the kind of jobs I've had, like that black humor, where, you know, it's things that maybe you should, probably should be laughing at, and then the next company you wouldn't laugh at because it, it would be considered insensitive, um, mm -hmm. you know, but, but, but kind of something that, you know, it's, 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 it's something that you do end up end up laughing at uh in in and amongst uh the people that do the same line of work so it's uh you know and one day you know you're always wondering am i is there something wrong with me because i'm laughing at that and you know there probably is uh no. but you know um if, it's the if, way we if you don't laugh at it then it does something else to you something worse and so you let it out it's a way of acting it out like you know i was just reading something about some people who've been in a war zone and it had been some very rough fighting and they were that later on they put on skits in their camp you know just mocking the two sides and so forth and you can see they had to do something like that they needed it for breathing room they needed to get control of it somehow and turn it into something 
that they that is otherwise it's going to overwhelm them. So that's another aspect in which when you confront something horrific, the the humor can emphasize that make it instead of being um, a distraction or just a momentary lull, it's something that that never it doesn't de depart from the overall idea of horror. It's not like there's suddenly this chunk of a sitcom dropped in the middle of your story. It's it's something that that shows the characters processing what happened to them, trying to get a grip on it, trying to get up on top of it. And so often what you can do is introduce like a humorous moment where they're all sort of laughing it off, and then the ghost or whatever will sort of go, eh, and it'll kind of just sort of like, yeah, laugh it up, buddy, but, you know, I'm still in charge here, right? And so, and that that's nice, because you're like, oh, yes, ha, 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 but, uh, you know, we're not actually free. That that's a If you can pull that off, that's a really nice little thing to be able to put into a story. And we had a question from Chris, uh, whose question is, is there a role for absurd ludicrous to highlight the way that things we think of ordinarily are actually extraordinary in the same way we think horrific can to make us look with fresh eyes? Um, no, absolutely. Of course, yes. The answer is yes. Uh, and happy birthday, Chris, by the way. Um, oh, yep. So. Uh, happy birthday, Chris. Yeah, the big five zero. Although he might not want me to mention his age, but he mentioned it on Twitter, so I assume it's okay. But uh, welcome to the club. But uh, the, for the the absurd or the ludicrous, yeah, that's what it is, really. It's it's sort of where you you stop and you say, wait, what am I doing? What do we do? What is this? And uh, suddenly it pops out at you that, that what you're doing doesn't make sense, or it only makes sense kind of locally. But you step out of that locality, and suddenly what you're doing looks looks absurd. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I always loved uh, anything that ever was since I was a kid. You know, I used to love the cartoons where everything went upside down and backwards and everything was wrong. And I sort of liked, I think kids just instinctively like that sort of thing because you're telling them, I don't have children, so I don't know. But, uh, you know, you're telling them ruthlessly how they have to be. So I think they get a little sour about it. And so they like to see it, everything flipped on their on its head. So flipping things on their on their heads can can be enlightening. It can be a way of taking you out of your. It can show you what you're taking for granted, and so uh, I think that's part of the appeal of absurdism in in fiction and, and ludicrous or surreal writing is the way that it um, it shows you the nonsense inside the sense. Um, the horrific depends on what we're talking about, but with the horrific, it can show you things that aren't supposed to be possible that happen. And the absurd kind of shows you what's normally going on so there can that you don't see. So there are places where that can overlap. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example, and I'm having trouble off the top of my head, but I guess if you're looking at life, like if you're looking at life from the point of view of a Lovecraftian entity, then or an elder thing from from the mountains of madness this human scurrying around doing their business and taking themselves terribly seriously all looks kind of ridiculous you know when you have an eons long perspective you see this a lot where you can confront godlike characters within with long lifespans or even like vampires or whatever and they say oh that again i've been alive for three thousand years i've seen this come and go it happens humans think they're so important so that that's a place where absurdity dovetails very naturally into a horror story um, and a lot of absurdism is also horrific, you know, I mean, again, if you look at things like Apocalypse Now, that's a horrific movie about war, but it's also full of absurdity, you know, it's like a Playboy bunny's dancing in the, in the jungle and so forth, you're like, what the hell are they, what's going on? 
um, uh, what are they thinking? And so uh, that's a place where horror and, and the absurd can also dovetail in the other direction, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, that is that absurd, <laughs> some absurdity in it. I just want to say happy birthday again to to uh, to Chris. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, happy birthday. And welcome to the five zero club. It's it's, yep. it's not bad on this side. It's not bad at you know. Yeah, the weather water's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, nice of the guys to arrange a Cisco talk for me to listen to my birthday. We, we aim to please, Chris. Thanks yeah. for the fish coming by. Don't say I never got you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> also wanted to congratulate you on the Stoker nomination. Oh, what was yeah. that Thank like? you very much. That's a big deal. That's a big Thank deal. You what was uh, being nominated like? What was that oh, process like? Being nominated? Well, the, being nominated was about uh, hearing from, it from from friends on Twitter, and they're saying, congratulations. I'm like, what? On what? And it took me a minute to, to figure it out. Um, but yeah, it, it was just the nomination process was just just being notified, you know, that uh, that I'd received that I'd uh, been. They were at least uh, there was a preliminary ballot, and then there's the the proper ballot. And uh, I was fully expecting to get knocked off the preliminary ballot, but I wasn't. Somehow, I survived. Uh, and so um, that was that's it. And then they contact you, and they, there's a certificate that you that they give you. Um, which is nice, you know, so you, you, they, you can prove that you're not fibbing when you tell people you're Stoker nominated. And uh, so, I mean, if I can, I'm planning to go to StokerCon this year. I've never been. So, uh, and a lot of people I've been sort of, I know electronically, but not in, in, in the, the flesh, in the new flesh, we can meet and, and finally meet and talk with each other a bit. And that, I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. That's always the most fun part of any con is just meeting other folks you've been, hearing about and reading for a long time and you finally get to talk with them that's the that's the cool part so um whoever wins i'm i'm very pleased i'm obviously very pleased and very flattered to have been nominated so the, the book that was nominated is a non-fiction book about uh weird fiction i just happened to have a copy of it right here and what do you know <laughs> just uh, where did this come from so yeah paul graves put it out it's my book about weird fiction a genre study and it, it's it's gratifying to get it nominated because I did. This is the result of a lot of years of work. Um, it was a pretty rigorous scholarly book, so um, it's, it's nice to get uh, acknowledged for it. Um, so yeah, that's the story so far. Um, that may be all there is to it. I don't know. It's up to the voters. That's that's a good story. Good story already. So yeah, good start. Yeah, very congratulations. That's and and I think those awards were. Um, your peers and readers and people who are part of the society um, vote. I think those are the most gratifying ones. If I'm not yeah. like, that's how I feel. I'm not sure if you feel the same, Michael, where, you know, and you don't even, you know, you don't even know that, that, that someone, people have nominated you, you get, you get selected. Yeah. I, I think those are the, the really gratifying ones. And of course, this mm -hmm. is pretty well, I think a lot of people would consider the most prestigious uh, literary uh, award in the horror sphere. Uh, so, you know, once again, congratulations. That's a big deal, man. That's a thank big you. Deal. Thank you very much. Shucks. It's like, uh, um, you know, like my face was red for quite a few days after I got the word of that. I was sort of in, I didn't believe it at first. I'm like, well, the couple of three people had to tell me. And then I was like, well, I guess this is, and then they contacted me. And so it's like, okay, now I know it's for real gulp. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, my my deepest gratitude to everybody, who, to the nominators and voters. Uh, 
So, if, if, you know, I, if this is as far as it goes, it's, it's already gone further than I thought it would have gone. Because, you know, you never know. With a book like this, you're just thinking, this could, you know, this will drop stillborn from the press. Three people will read it and it'll vanish forever. So the idea that more than a few people are reading it is, is very nice uh, indeed. So I, I would like to think that uh, somebody got something out of it. Um, <laughs> that was my thinking there. Do, do you, um, what, what have you found, um, I don't want to say more gratifying, but what's the gratification you get writing uh, something that's very academic like that versus writing fiction? Like what, do, what, like what's the, 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 the thing that gets you, okay, great, I'm going to write this very scholarly, do all this hard research and, you know, like what, what gets you stoked about that versus just letting your creative imagination, writing speculative fiction, just letting it go wild and, and dreaming up whatever you want, essentially, and putting down a bit. In a word, uh, spite, uh, you know, proving that you can do it too, <laughs> proving that, um, you know, like uh, the, I mean, this started a long time ago when I was getting my degree and, you know, this was in the 90s and there was all this theory and I wasn't really prepared for theory and it threw me and, but I didn't want to just reject it out of hand. I wanted to see if they, what they were talking about, I wanted to be able to evaluate it legitimately and, um, Ultimately, I think I had a chip on my shoulder, and I wanted to prove that I could do something like that, uh, that I could write something really rigorous and and um, deep that way. And but you know, then I guess as as I pushed on, I became you know I, I became more engrossed in in reading, you know, uh, more theoretical or philosophical stuff. I found uh, in fascinating ideas embedded in there, oftentimes uh, ideas that were. Um, even upsetting or or challenging things that would really challenge my assumptions and and turn my and really sort of threaten uh, cherished ideas and just sort of toughing it out and saying all right let's let's really look at this and say okay maybe I was wrong about that kind of thing maybe I do need to look at this again then you feel like you it you feel like you are growing like you are really learning you are actually challenging yourself it it's like it becomes like you know like going to the gym sucks. But you do it, and it's boring, and you keep doing it. And you, but eventually, if you do it long enough, you start to want to do it. You start to miss it if you're not doing it. You start to feel at least a little bad if you're not doing it. And sometimes, I dare say, you might even feel a certain degree of self-satisfaction if you manage to keep at it for a while and get some results. And so it's kind of the same thing. You just keep plugging away, and eventually, you know, you want to read more, and you want to get that other book in and, and think about it more. And then eventually you want to see, can I do this myself? You know, by the time I was working on my on this book, I'd already published a bunch of books. I knew I could write books, but I was like, "Well, you can write this artistic stuff, but anything with a really rigorous academic start, I'm like, yes, I'll show you, I'll show you, I can write something rigorous." And so, uh, so that was kind of that was kind of it. But being, once you get past that level, you actually find there's like, I'm learning, I'm understanding things, I actually can figure stuff out, and you know. It's not like you put this out there and say, this will rule for all time as the definitive book. It's like, this is my shot at a definition and an explanation. I put this out there with the expectations that it's going to get shot full of arrows and and uh, and so forth. But you've got to try. You've got to put these things out there and, and try to define something, try to explain something. Or else we're just left sort of sitting around not with nothing to say. Like, what do we do? It's like, you, you've got to take a chance. You know, even a scientist with a lot of evidence, if someone comes along with a better theory, 
you have to accept it. You have to say, well, runner, and just like, well, I did my best, and I guess I was wrong, and and you move on, and that's how that's how that's the the discipline, and so. Um, you know, I'm prepared to take to take whatever flack I get for my generalizations because I mean any generalization will have problems. Yeah. So, um, but uh, just one, I felt like, yeah, there was something ultimately personal um, there, a personal gratification that I got for doing this. That was kind of like what happens when you write artistically or you write a novel. You know, sort of like when I wrote my. I know I'm talking a lot, but um, just briefly, when I wrote my first novel. I was not in the best place personally, and I wrote the novel, and I wrote it through, and I wrote the end, and it was done. And I said, well, whether it gets published or whatever happens, ever since I was a kid, I've been saying to myself more or less, I'm going to write a book, and I did it. I wrote it. I did it. So whether it sucks or it's bad or good, I did it. And that is the notch on my belt or whatever. That's the badge, and you can't take that away from me. Nobody can take that from me. I did what I said I was going to do. And exactly. And like, you know what I mean? And it's the same thing with the scholarly stuff. It's like, you know, one of these days I'll, I'm going to do something like that. And I did it. And I didn't half-ass it. And I, I did the time and I did it as best as I could. And so whether it lives or dies or gets awards or whatever, I know I did it. And I can, and that's not something that anybody can, can could give me. I had to do it. And it's not something anyone can take away from me. I did it. Fantastic. Don't worry about talking too much. That's what we want. Okay. We want you to talk. So. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Don't hold back. Yeah, that's fantastic. But but I mean, Michael, you know, um, I, we've talked about this on previous page chewing with other guests and um, mm -hmm. Steve and article who's Taylor. We've talked about this a lot, kind of off camera. Like, you know, when it comes to writing, being an author, you know, part of it, um, I believe it was the last time we spoke about it on camera was with Philip Chase. Uh, okay. Who was brilliant. Dr. Chase, brilliant academic and writer, seems to be published uh, fantasy writer, that, you know, we're kind of perhaps consciously or, or subconsciously seeking this, this bit of immortality with, with what we write, mm -hmm. because it's, it's potentially going to, you know, transcend our lifetimes. And, you know, mm -hmm. if it stays in print and, you know, we will see, keep reading it, then then definitely, right? Um, when when you're doing something really, really rigid, as you said, and, and, and you know, more scholastic academic, uh, and something that now is potentially an award-winning, um, you know, is going to be looked at as a, as potentially a resource, and could be looked at as a, as a resource in in the academic side. So essentially, you know, some professor could teach a, a course on X at the university level and use your book as part of the the. I know it's scary, isn't it? As part of the yeah. reference material, yeah. it's scary, but it's exciting. Yeah, yeah. But, and, and that's different from, you know, someone making a movie adaptation about one of your, your, your fiction books, but it's still equally uh, weighty and important and impressive and significant. And so, you know, like when you think about, so going back to this whole, this whole uh, academic stuff. So, yeah. So imagine now your, your book now, Stoker nominated book uh, winds up being, you know, course, course resource material for some university course on some aspect of horror or literature or whatever. So now, mm -hmm. Um, you know, you, you might potentially have like, you know, your book sitting in, in library. Well, I know there's very, very few physical libraries left on, on the, on the academic side. There's, there's still some, but you know, now you're having, having students buy your book, you know, it's part of the mandatory required reading for, for X course. And, you know, now people are referring to your book and, 
and quoting it and blah blah like that's that's a different feeling too isn't it like that's that's something really special too that people are using your book to learn mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. yeah the uh that, then you feel like you've intervened in the conversation that you've you've managed to make a contribution to that and the goal there is is not to dominate the conversation but to stimulate it and add to it and be a, and provide for others to draw from um and so that uh, so they can carry it forward um so yeah that would i mean that's the dream right that you're going to write something that will make that kind of impression um you know and but also you could be you know like this book had something to do with other books that had been written before on the subject that i didn't like very much and so um that maybe someone takes a dislike to my book and writes something that counters it but even then I've been part of it, and so even if I got everything horrifically wrong and somebody had to come on and laboriously correct all my lame arguments, nevertheless, that still contributed something. And so uh, it's still worth doing. Um, it's not as flattering, but it's, uh, but it's still worth doing. Um, uh, hopefully I'm not a complete blockhead, and some of this stuff is actually of some use. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the goal. It's like to, to sustain something and carry it forward. There's a lot of... Um, worry now that interest in the humanities is shrinking uh, that fewer people are signing up for english majors and my th understanding is that people are largely doing this for reasons that aren't inherent to it's not like people have lost interest in the subject it's more like they don't see how they can connect it to, to the work that they need so that they can afford to live in this country and uh, that's something that's put beyond the parameters of the discipline to address but um, the it is important, I think, to keep the uh, keep the discipline alive, to keep interest in in critical work alive. I mean, we a lot of us just do it spontaneously on the web or whatever. Talking talking about the books you love, talking about the movies you love, analyzing them. People who aren't paid a dime who just want to talk about their favorite books and movies. So it's it's an instinct people have. People want to do it. And uh, people may even want to study it in a more strictly structured or systematic way. And so there is an appetite for that. So it's important not to give up uh, and not to cede ground and, and to say, no, this does matter and we do need to study it. And thinking about it does uh, help us uh, in important ways. And it is it does have value. So uh, you are contributing in a particular way, but you're also contributing in a more general way to, to, to keep the conversation alive. Um, I don't know if my book is a huge part of that or any part of that, but I mean, the goal is to do something like that. And, mm. uh, our friend Nicholas Kaufman is here. Oh. Hi, Nick. Uh, I'm a big fan of Michael Sisko's work, and also of Michael himself. My question is, are there any short story writers in horror or fantasy that you'd recommend that readers may not know of? Gee, um... In horror or fantasy, I just discovered this person. I don't know. Maybe everybody knows her, but uh, her name is Zena Henderson. Z-E-N-N-A. Last name Henderson. And she wrote in the 50s and 60s. One of the first important uh, female writers. She was of the Tip Tree generation. She was around there. Uh, I just blundered across a book of hers by complete chance. It was called The Anything Box. And um, it was just a collection of short stories. I, I found it online for free. It may be out of copyright, or maybe I just got it somewhere I shouldn't have got it. But, I mean, I, I wasn't consciously pirating it or anything. It was just there. But um, she was originally from Arizona. She was born in 1917 and died in the 80s sometime. 
And she, there's one story in particular she wrote called Walking Aunt Dade. D, walking Aunt, A-U-N-T, Dade, D-A-I-D. And it's pretty clear that Aunt Dade, isn't, that's not her name. That's just an American parochial way of saying that maybe Aunt Dade is Dade. Like she's a Dade person. <laughs> uh, uh, so, and that book is, that story was, was not like any, you know, you're reading it and you're thinking, oh, it's going to go like this. And it doesn't. It goes like that. And, and uh, it's, um, it was a really moving, interesting story. And I was actually thinking of maybe like reading it for YouTube or something like that. Cause I've, I've never heard anybody mention her. Uh, maybe other people have, but um, that was, I don't know if it's in print anymore. I doubt it, but um, um, Zena Henderson is the name and uh, Z E N N A and last name Henderson. Um, she wrote sci-fi stuff too. There's one, um, I think one collection she did is just called the people she did a whole bunch of stories about aliens who were just called the people. Um, there's like a TV movie made with like William Shatner in it about one of them, um, adapting at least one of her stories. So, I mean, people are not totally unaware, but she might have slipped through the cracks. I just haven't heard her listen. I haven't heard anybody mention her recently. So, I mean, that it's not a bad pull uh, to grab for, for her stuff. And then, you know, looking outside of... Um, the domain of, of English, looking at stuff translated from other languages. I mean, you know, there's just a host of amazing stuff you can read. In the horror vein, um, I don't know if people are reading um, Edogawa Rampo. He was a Japanese writer. His name is a pseudonym. It's just a, and it, it's like a Japanese version of the name Edgar Allan Poe, Edogawa Rampo, uh, but it's spelled like E D O. I wish I had a chat, I could type it there. E-D-O-G-A-W-A, and then the last name R-A-M-P-O. I'm pretty sure he's in print. He did a kind of famous story called The Human Chair. Um, done a few other stories as well that are also really uh, arresting and intense and original. And, uh, you know, and it's always interesting to see how writers from other cultures come into horror or come into weird fiction with their own preoccupations and it, it really it can be very refreshing and very exciting to discover other writers um like i never know what to do with tutola like amos tutola you know my life in the bush of ghosts the palm wine drunkard because uh that i think is more magical realist so i don't know if i would call that horror short story writers and horror well um, I mean, I guess he's well-known now because he got a Stoker nomination, but Attila Veres, a Hungarian writer, did the book called The Black Maybe. It was published by Valancourt. Um, and that was that was great. Like, all the stories were really, really good, and there were some stories in there that were just outstanding. Um, I could probably go on longer. I mean, I'm thinking of... Um, I mean, people are reading Mariana Enriquez. I know that. And she has a new book out that I'm dying to read. I think it's Our Share of Night, I think it's called. Our Share of Night. I'm, d I'm dying to read that. I mean, I'll probably think of five other good answers in about about five minutes after we're done here is what will happen. Is those ideas will come in there. But uh, I did just happen to blunder across Zena Henderson, so you might, like, look her up. Or maybe I'm just, maybe you know her already. Um, yeah, give her a shot. Uh 
Walking Aunt Dade. That's that story is really something. I think, in my opinion. <laughs> no, that's good stuff. And you have a book available for pre-order now, right? Pray. No. On your website. Pest. Pest. Sorry. Pest. <laughs> um, yep, this is up for pre-order. This will be out in. This will be out in couple of weeks probably i think it's out this month um so yeah it's coming out from the the great folks at clash books they've been doing a lot of really interesting stuff lately they've been publishing a lot of really good writers and i'm I, i'm feeling very uh this is my first book with them and i've enjoyed working with them a lot this feels like it, it could be quite a good fit so yeah that's coming out in a couple of weeks from now um so I th yeah, I think it's available. Uh, it is available for free order. So uh, add it to Goodreads. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I indeed. Yeah, and just uh, added it. Fair is oh. here to help us out. Best on March. Thank 21st. you, Farah. Yeah, thank you, Farah. Yeah. And um, what is what's the inspiration for Pest? What's the what's the uh, what's the the tagline or what's the, the pitch for it? Oh, the pitch or the tagline? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, Again, pretty damn weird. I mean, it's set in our world, uh, so it's not in a fantasy world. Um, it combines a lot of the different preoccupations that I had uh, at the time a few years ago. And, you know, ever since I was a kid, I mean, I remember when I encountered Watership Down and that just absolutely, you know, kicked the legs right out from under me. I just, I didn't, never got over reading that book. And uh, I did a, a novella about birds called Ethics a couple of years ago with Lovecraft Ezine Press published it. And it was the first thing I'd written with no human characters, just all animals. And it, Watership Down was back here the whole time, breathing down my neck. And there was just something about writing about animals um, that is, I don't know, it, it, I, it I don't know about it, how it is for other people. For me, it, it enables me to get to the emotional core of things in a way that seems very direct. Um, and so part that was sort of in the background. Like I knew I wasn't done with that idea yet. I just didn't know quite how to make it work. And but I don't know if I can explain how I got this idea. But I mean the story. Let me see if I can explain it in a minimally baffling way. The um, the main character is probably looking back on his the idea the main idea was a main a person looking back on their life more or less having reincarnated as a wild himalayan yak so i'm a yak now but i used to be a human and i'm looking back now we can finesse that a bit and say well it could be a dream of the human being he's just you know it's a dream that he's been you know maybe he's ill or he's been knocked unconscious that's what we see at the beginning of the story he is knocked unconscious so is he dreaming this or whatever it doesn't matter the point is the story bilocates between this person's life and their life as a wild yak in the Himalayas with the rut looming over them. Uh, the rut is coming and, and he can feel it coming and he doesn't know what's going to happen because he's a fully adult yak. Um, why a yak? I don't know. Just, it's a yak. It's, it's fun to say yak. I don't know. Uh, it, it, I guess you could say there's an absurdism to it, but... Um, in his life life in his human life he's um he's been recruited by this kind of californian surfer sort of cult leader type guy to design and build a campus on catalina island 
he's uh he's not an architect he's a civic engineer but he's had dreams of doing architecture and this is his chance this is his shot to design buildings and design a whole a whole campus and he's going to get to do it and the this guy wants it built because he says that that the earth is going to be visited by a very special guest and that guest is going to come to Catalina Island he's seen it in his mind he knows it's going to happen and he wants a, a, a group ready to receive this guest when they come and the campus is for them to go and prepare themselves so and uh, he's sketching a lot of the book is about getting money about getting the money for this and this sort of magical duel that the cultists have with the bankers and we kind of see which ones are the more weird inhuman and indoctrinated and they both are like talking cross talk to each other as they're basically trying to negotiate a loan so that they can actually get the money to build this thing so that's what's going on in that life and then but then we alternate with you know um you know being a yak and um just yakking out in the in the himalayas and experiencing life from that point of view so each you know i guess it, talking about the absurd like going into the animal perspective and looking back on mankind gives you a chance to sort of see the absurdity of all that being a yak is also somehow slightly comical to us humans i guess so it kind of works the other way um and i guess that was kind of the idea like usually if i'm writing i want the ideas to lead me to where they want to go uh, i want them to tell them i want to feel like i'm dealing with something that's alive and that has its own destiny like it wants like a, you know like i don't want a robot i don't want to just grid out exactly what it's going to do i want it to tell me what it wants to do and so then I kind of follow it where it goes. And then if it goes in a direction that's kind of lame, then I'll be like, eh, maybe we try a different direction. Uh, but at the same, I want to feel like sometimes yeah, I'll try to push a book in a given direction and it's like, no, not doing it. I'm like, I'm the writer. You have to, mm -mm. nope. You can write whatever you want, man. It's going to suck. It's going to suck if you go this direction. I'm telling you. And the book is right, and then you learn to listen to the book. And you're like, okay, fine, you were right. This part doesn't work. Trash it. I got to go this way because this is the this is what you want to be. Okay, so yeah, and so with with this, the idea is, you know, why why try to force it into something that makes sense? It's like let it make its own sense, and then you'll have made something that's more new, more different, um, something that's its own thing. So that's where a book like like past kind of comes from, and, you know, just like following out the the implications of some of your less transparent or obvious ideas and, and juxtapositions, and just saying, okay, well, what if? What if we? What if we do this? What if we do that? So I guess you could say, in that sense, it's experimental. If uh, it's it's not very experimentally written, that's like it's not like it's all laid out weirdly on the page or anything. Uh, you know, it just looks like regular text, you know, so it's not all numbers and backwards and it's not like House of Leaves where you got to flip around. Yeah. Um, all you have to do is just sort of keep the strains, the two threads t clear in your mind and you can pretty much follow it, I think. Hmm. So let's see, that's the best I can do uh, to answer that one. So I'm getting the sense, um, Michael, you, so, and this is a very, I know it's become very staid, and, but Panzer, Plotter for your fiction stuff. So, <laughs> where, where where do you lean? I always know where it's going to end. I always know the ending. I know where we're going to land. And very often, the the idea of the book will often have to do with the ending. Like, what if we got there? And it's like, oh man, if I could get people there, 
then man, you know, they just they come away just ringing and smarting and and vibrating. It's like, okay, how do I get there? And where do I start? And how do I get there? Um, and then, to a certain extent, I'll know like milestones. I'll know like important moments and things that need to happen. Um, but I don't rigorously plot things out. It's more like, I know I'm going to have to go here, and then I'm going to have to go here, and then I'm going to have to go here. So it's more like an itinerary. Like you're going on a trip, and you know you're going to these places. You haven't been there yet. You don't know what it's going to be like. You're going to go there and look around and explore. So you know roughly what it's going to be like. Like it's a cathedral, it's a stone circle, it's a cave, it's a zoo, whatever. But you don't know what experiences you're going to have when you get there. So the, the key is to kind of set up this series of excursions, these little trips, and it's like, now I go here, and what do you see? It's like, oh, I see this, and this, and I don't know what I'm going to see till I see it. And then sometimes that'll spin off into something else, and it'll develop kind of organically. And that's what, what you want. So it's like not like no, no planning, total, totally spontaneous or pantsy flying. Um, there's a rough overall sketch, but I don't, sometimes I'll, I'll stop and say, okay, I need to go here, here, and here. I need to do this, this, and this. These things have to happen. So I'll have like little micro, micro outlining segments, like for, you know what I mean? Not for the whole text, but just for this bit or that bit, or how it's gonna, how we're gonna get from here to there. But I don't want to have. I just feel like if I'm gonna do a really systematic overall outline, if I write that, why not just give people that? You know, it's like it's we're done. Here it is. Read that. I mean, you can just fill in the gaps with more interesting stuff than I could imagine anyway. So just do it. And that's cool. You know, like, why not? So I, I, I want to find out things about the book as I go along. But at the same time, I don't want it to be something that, that loses a reader's attention because they just feel like you're just kind of bullshitting. You know, like you're just kind of like, you know, just running your mouth. Like you want to, you want them always to feel like they're being taken to a particular place. And so that's why for me, it's like the, the, the ending seems to work like such an anchor point. Like, I wherever we're going, you know that's where we're going to end up. And so, you know, when I used to, when I started out writing, I would start at the beginning and write straight through to the end. And I tend to do that now, now too. But as time has gone, on, gone by, I've gotten a lot more comfortable with going, with just ranging through the whole text. Just going through the whole text and just like making adjustments here and here and here. It's like tweak this or this comes out, or put this here, and I can hold the whole thing together, and that's not that's not a challenge, it's not tough, and I can start to just kind of process the whole thing at once instead of a piece at a time. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's just more how it's become. And, like, I'm writing something now, and I've made, I've, it's short, it's, it's like only about 55,000 words, but I've gone through it and gone through it and gone through it and gone through it. And just like every time I go through it, it's just like the focus tightens just a bit more. The image or the idea gets a little bit sharper, a little bit clearer. I'm starting to say, that's what happened. That's what happened. That's why he's always sad. Or that's why that's the way that that happened. So I have to go back and put it in. It's like, but the thing is, I'm not sticking in something that wasn't there. It's just... It was back here, but it wasn't on the page. And so I need to, it's like, put it on the page now. It's like, now, like, um, first book I wrote, I said, the manuscript, uh, Ligotti saw the manuscript, and uh, he didn't give me a lot of concrete feedback. He already 
understood that wouldn't work. Um, but he said, like, uh, he just, he said, in certain places, it's clear you know what's going on, but the reader needs to know what's going on. And that was my feeling ever since, pretty much. It's like, okay, am I make? I know what's happening, but have I, does the reader really see what it is? You know, sometimes I'll feel like, you know, oh, I can't say that, and then I'll have to say, you need to say that. Of course you need to say that. Say that. That's what happened. This person did this. This person is a survivor of that. And then you, you put it in there. And it's like, why didn't I? That should have been in there from the start. Why didn't I think of that? And it's because I was taking it for granted. And I, that it was sort of like I was living with this idea so much. I just was sort of taking it for granted that I that it was just there already. And it's like, no, you need to... They don't... Other people are reading this. You have to tell them, and then it's oh right, and then it then then that's and so yeah, uh, I'm starting to figure out with each pass, you know, just like the focus gets pulled a little sharper, the idea comes out a bit more, and I'm like, there it is, that's what it is, and then I can give it its proper place in the book, and the book will kind of gel, and then I got it, or as best as I'm gonna be able to get it, that's it. So that's part of the. That's that's it. I guess it's because it, whether it's pantsuit or plotting, I have to be engaged fully in this process of figuring it out, and I have to be like into it and enjoying it and thinking about it and turning it this way and that, or else I just feel like I'm phoning it in, and that's just not a good feeling. I don't want to ever feel like I'm just just like just d tossing something off. I want to feel like I'm really doing something. Like I'm I've got. I'm carrying some weight. I've got some umph. I'm getting, I'm moving something, and uh, that's what gives me that feeling. Just I need to know that I'm I'm in kind of into it and enjoying that pro that process of shaping, composing, and that that's where the work is, and that's where the gratification is. Long-winded answer, but that's the answer. That was that's a great, that's a great, answer. great answer. Is that echo again? No. Okay. Don't know where <laughs> okay um so obviously <laughs> obviously with with nonfiction, it's different so um a lot and when i said you know the state question serious question because especially applies on the on the nonfiction, and then you're you're doing research there is a lot more planning going yes. on right so uh, uh, you know a lot less liberty to do certain things and right. um you know now and remember i talked a bit before about the, the the enjoyment you can get from both from writing fiction versus I've never written nonfiction. I don't think I could. I don't think I have the discipline and and you know the the, the, you never the, know. the, the wherewithal the fortitude <laughs> to do that. But um, I am very much a planner with my fiction, right? Mm -hmm. So I you know planned out a seven book series, planned out two prequel trilogies before that, planned out a subsequent seven book series, like planned out all the taught titles, planned out all the covers, planned out all the exact plots, like everything land down to the, the minutia, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, I still do leave myself some latitude for, okay, if if some character just, you know, initially, you know, they start off as being minor, but then somehow they just grab you and they're like, I need more agency and I need you to write more about me. And they, they take a bigger uh, aspect of the book, like that happens. However, when it mm -hmm. comes to uh, nonfiction, obviously, typically mm -hmm. that's not something you're allowed to do. So, when you plan a nonfiction, because there's the research part, and then uh, it sounds like your book again is exploring, you know, uh, the work of others as well, and making some comparisons, contrasting things like that. Um, do you feel that it's when you can? We talked about rigidity. Do you feel it's it's tougher 
to, to do some of that because you are so constricted with some of this some of that stuff well yeah like um for a long time there was a palpable wrench every time i would shift into something more like nonfiction, and it was really and it hurt sometimes it would be really feeling like i was being pulled in two different directions because it seems like it is a totally different way of thinking um that you know there you feel not necessarily less free but everything you're doing is going to be you're sort of assuming everything you're doing every word you're saying is going to be very very closely examined and judged and uh you don't want to screw that up and you know it, it's hard to find your voice as a scholar as a writer if you have talent your voice just kind of presents itself but to have a voice as a scholar means you're making a certain claim you're claiming that you know what you're talking about and not just like the guy at the bar but like no i can that's scary I'm, stuff man that's scary stuff it's very scary you know it's like that it's like i have to put myself out in front of people like some kind of pro that i know what i'm talking about so best not miss when you do something like that you want to make sure you know your stuff and just there's nothing more important than having that deep grounding in just a thorough familiarity with a body of writing or or something like that so like you know what it's like when you're on your turf when you're talking about say horror novels or whatever it is or fantasy novels you know your turf you know that stuff you know it and you feel very confident and so that's where you build from i think you build from that you say look i know this so then i can bring that out i can build out on that if i can know this i can know other things and also you can give yourself permission to take chances in the sense that you're okay i'm going to put myself out there i'm going to say this genre works like this and if i get killed i die but at least i i took my shot at it so the rigor but that's the thing it's it really is sort of like what what happened with writing and eventually you have to get to a point where you're in like getting something out of the rigor that you're enjoying it or you're engaged in it like um a lot of it for me was just like looking at what other people were saying and coming up with really clear explanations as to why I thought they were wrong. Um, and well, if I'm going to shoot my mouth off and say they're wrong, then I better have an alternative. I can't just sit there and, and, and take pot shots at people. I have to put, present something positive with the understanding that I will in turn be found inevitably wrong in some ways, but it's, that doesn't matter. It's, so don't sweat that too much. You make it as strong as you can, but you don't become paralyzed. So it was about, A, just you, you read and process a lot, and you accumulate ideas, and you start aligning the ideas, and and, and uh, consistency here is your is difficult, but it's also your friend, because you'll, you can tell what fits, what doesn't, and, but then in the midst of that, you have to invent something. You actually do have to do something creative. I have to come up with a definition. I have to come up with concepts. I have to explain what I mean when I'd say the supernatural. I mean this. Um, this really grew out of reading fantasy and science fiction and, and horror too. Like, well, what is the supernatural? This question. And it's like, okay, well, you know, it's ghosts and vampires and stuff. It's like, those are examples. That's not a definition. We can say these are all in the supernatural box, but what that box is has yet to be explained. What is that box? Well, it's outside nature. 
okay what does that mean and then we can start to but see now we're thinking now we're trying to come up with something now we're trying to create something something other people could use or argue about it. I mean arguing about it is using it so then it's on us you can use it um, and you know like what do I read weird fiction for what do I want what is the aesthetic gratification that I personally get uh, is that a feature is that part of it is that the intention is that how is that made so this inform this can help inform my writing in a very backwards offhand way you know where you start to see what makes it what it is so you know for me the idea was the supernatural was less about some kind of like if you're saying okay there are these gods and they create this and then the magic and their names are the magic now you're writing fantasy to me now you're creating if it has rules now we're in fantasy um uh, or if you're saying well it's it's god and angels well now you're that's theology right that's a religious text now you're writing dante that's not weird fiction weird fiction doesn't know what the hell the supernatural is and that's the point it's that that's the feeling like okay where have i encountered the supernatural in my life if i have ever and it's been reading weird fiction that's where i got my idea from i didn't see ghosts i read ghost stories and that to me is what the supernatural is okay what's that and it's the feeling of not knowing what's real it's when i'm sitting at home in my ordinary life and i'm not in middle earth or any i'm on earth with you and everything's normal but i don't know suddenly i'm like how do i know what i know how do i know that those people i see on the street are actually there or i'm seeing things? how do i know i'm me and those little insidious questions it's like that to me is more supernatural than a ghost is a form of energy that comes from like that's science fiction that's that's great you want to write that but that's sci-fi that's scratching a different itch it's a good itch it's a good scratch but that's not the, the itch i'm talking about the itch i want is that don't know kind of thing that kind of i don't, I don't know and that makes and then that to me is like when you start to feel like like weird fiction like the argument of the book it's like what's the appeal of weird fiction is it that i want to be afraid i want to be afraid i'll go on a roller coaster that makes me afraid reading about atrocities in history that makes me plenty afraid uh watching the news makes me real afraid but it's not not like weird fiction weird fiction doesn't make me afraid that way so what is it doing and so often it's about it's said in like super normal circumstances where everything's really normal and it's a little too normal and it's starting to feel oppressively normal and and then something weird happens and you gravitate towards that it's like wait there's more it's not all just this box there's something really there's something above and beyond or something outside even if it's scary there's an outside and if there's an outside then i'm not trapped anymore and then there's there's a little there's an opportunity for freedom however scary it is so it's like why do you go into the haunted house like that's a haunted house is full of ghosts that drive you crazy it's like oh really let's go in it's like <laughs> right you plainly want this so it's like well what do you want you, you want to to know that they're not just that everything hasn't actually been explained and planned and plotted out that there's some something alive in there and that to me is was really what the, the what the supernatural is about so it I had to go into what I liked about weird fiction in order to figure that out. But then once then you just take that insight or that idea, whatever, and you can apply it artistically in a story, but you can also kind of codify it and make it academic. So you can and you don't want the writing about literature to be so totally divorced from writing or literature or creativity. Otherwise, it's like 
then we're kind of not doing it anymore. Because uh, this is, it's still writing. It's still creative. It's creative in a different way, but it's still creative. Um, so the the key was finding a way to be creative in a kind of rigorous way where, you know, people could actually try to apply your concepts to other things. Um, and it also meant, like, the the theoretical part of the book is done within about, I mean, I'm looking it up. Like, this is the theoretical part of the book, this part. And this is the case studies, this part. This is the stuff where I get to talk about all my favorite stories. So you see what I did there, right? So I got to put the hard stuff in here, and then I got to have the fun back here. So here I get to talk about, you know, Poe and Tanana Rivdu and uh, Edith Wharton and, you know, all kinds of great stories that I like. And and I apply the thought, the, the theory from this part gets applied in this part. And the idea that I can see if it works or not. So I kind of... Um, I, I smuggled some enjoyment into the into the book um, uh, too. So you know, it it was it was hard to write. It took a long time. It was there was a lot of paring away stuff that didn't matter and focusing and repurposing and you know. Uh, but uh, it's not like I'm going to whip out another one of these next year. It's something like that. It's but there is something gratifying about a long term project that you can actually finish. Like. This took years and years, and then it's done, and it's actually done. I didn't just quit. It's done, and I did it, and it took a long time, but I was able to sustain effort over that period of time, and so I got something that's like rock solid, in my opinion, all the way through. And so, you know, that, that so, it, you know, it, it sustains itself after a while, just because uh, you, you've invested so much in it. <clears throat> I have a question from Ali. A question from okay. Francisco. Uh, where would you recommend someone start with your work? It kind of depends. Thank you, Ali. Uh, it sort of depends on where you're, what you want. Um, if you're more on the fantasy angle, um, the narrator is uh, a book people seem to like. Um, that is, um, you know, I, I don't have a seven-part fantasy trilogy or series. But I w I've always been fascinated by the idea of fantasy worlds and, and world building. And I wanted to come up to world building in a way that didn't involve being God. Like, instead of knowing everything and seeing everything, I was saying, no, everything's local and everybody disagrees about everything. So the world started here. No, it didn't. It started here. Well, we said, it was like, no, this is the gods. No, these are the gods. No, that war didn't mean that. It meant this. It's like, no, those were the good guys. What are you talking about? Those guys were evil. No, those guys were evil. So there's no, it's just like humans, in other words, right? It's a mess, right? It's just the history is contradictory and messy. And that, you know, if that, of course, gives you leeway to contradict yourself, which is which is fun. I think that's like, you know, the Viraconium books by, by M. John Harrison. Um in Viraconium and so forth, they take kind of they take kind of that approach. Like every version of the story is like a revision of this place that exists, sort of despite its constant revisions. Um, so the narrator is kind of a, a fantasy book. I've written several fantasy books in that world, and I've decided certain things about that world, and other things I'm letting the characters disagree about. Um, but so that's. But you don't need to know any background or anything to understand the narrator. It's a self-contained 
book and that was I wanted to do something that was like fantasy I mean it's more like Napoleonic than sword and sorcery but fantasy war but without the moral unambiguity of something like Tolkien's books where there's good and evil or Moorcock's law and chaos is more amoral but they have clear distinct sides and uh, and humans have a pretty clear path they have to negotiate between these two extremes and he was like well what if you just have two guys just like war like like an apocalypse now take on war where it's just it makes no sense nobody makes any sense it's all baffling it's all just a horrific mess and I was like that's what I was sort of maybe other writers have done that and I missed it but I wanted to do that in a fantasy book and that's where the narrator was coming from just a total mess um, well I'm ripping off stalker in that book too I have to admit you know sorry um, I can't help it but um, if you're more interested in horror then maybe the place to go might be anti-societies which is a collection of short stories that I did with Grim Scribe just a couple of years ago uh, probably already two years ago now but um, that's like 10 short stories all sort of centered around the theme of isolation and loneliness it was not planned to come out during COVID but it did um, and uh, that's uh, that's uh, you know like the stories are all pretty much uniform I wrote it kind of like I sort of thought I want to write something that would work kind of like a record album we're old enough to remember those uh, you know you get a record 40 minutes each tracks about five minutes so you're looking about eight to ten tracks and that's your record and I wanted to do something like that with like each like about ten stories all about the same length and it would just be like a themed record each story would be just like one idea developed and played out uh, in a story of about 4,000 words a piece. So nothing too oppressively long. Um, I don't know why it occurred to me in that kind of formal way. It just did. And for some reason, that just made it really, really straightforward to write. Um, so that might be a good place to start with horror, especially because it's it's, it'll be in print and easier to find. Some of my stuff can be a little tricky to locate because it's out of print. Um, so yeah, that's where I would say you could start. Um, I don't have any horror novels that are still in print, I think. Um, yeah, so of the stuff that's out now, um, I mean, ethics is kind of horrific. That's around, but it's kind of its own thing. But um, yeah, so anti-societies for horror, I'd say, and the narrator for fantasy. And, uh, Aaron's here, it sounds like Grimdark, the narrator. <laughs> And her, hey, her, her Taylor's here. Hi Taylor. there. Yeah. Hey Taylor. And uh, Brady in the books, uh, Tenevere, I'm mispronouncing that name. Do doesn't get enough exposure. I feel like she's fantastic. She is. Yeah, I did a story of hers in here. Um, oh, nice. Uh, I keep forgetting if it's Senora Muerte or Senorita Muerte. Um, let me let me check my table of contents, and I can. I don't want to mangle the name of the story. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where's the list? Where's the list? Um, I'll gun it. Where is it? There it is. Uh, Senora Suerte, rather. Senora Suerte is the story I did. Yeah, so Do is really good. I mean, she did, um, she's done something, I think, pretty recently, and um, a couple of anthologies. I don't know if she's Caribbean. I might, I could be totally wrong about this, and I apologize. Um, but, um, yeah, I will. I will just heartily re re up the uh, 
that affirmation from from um, Birdie in the books. Uh, read Tanana Do. She's really, really good. She's the real thing. She's an exciting writer, and she, she's still... Uh, and I think she's got more surprises for us. I think that she's going to keep growing and learning and doing more. Yes. And uh, Chris had a comment. I still haven't entirely shaken the existential crisis that one of the stories <laughs> in anti-societies gave me in a good way. <laughs> I mean, I'm very happy to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> was, yeah, I'd be was, curious what, to know which story, but... Um. I was uh, curious about that one. Isolation can be a very heavy and uh, it's very it could be a very negative thing uh, for for us to experience did you do any uh, research on that on those stories or was it something you drew from ex personal experiences or well i drew that story? from experience i drew that from experience uh, i mean i'm married and and uh, so i haven't been alone for a long time but there were periods in my life that when i you know especially in my 20s when i was i just moved to new york and i knew a few people but you know i was busy they were busy and so you know, there were times when I would go weeks without talking to anybody except like the person at the bodega or in the, in the laundromat, you know, just like, uh, here's your change, <laughs> you know, or something like that. And so, um, I mean, I've, 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 I know what, uh, you know, when you're alone for a long time, you get stranger and stranger and stranger because you're, you're not getting feedback or input. So your, your world shrink, your, your world doesn't shrink, but it becomes very you flavored. And everything you see and experience is really it starts to reflect a bit more of you than you really needed to. Mm. But yeah, and always I don't know why, but I've always been fascinated by you know this the I, so I wouldn't call this research, but it might count as research. Um, writings by people by insane people or people who've been called insane. Just intrigued by their perspectives on things. Um, so I guess growing up in the 70s, I guess there was a kind of uh, something in the air that tended to romanticize insanity sometimes or delusions a little bit to say, uh, these are the people who, who really know what's going on. And I guess I absorbed a little bit of that for good or ill. Um, but um, I was always um, fascinated by um, accounts of, of, of madness, of people going mad. Um, whether it's Poe pretending to go mad or being mad but pretending to go mad, but being mad, I don't know. But um, the, the, the fact that sanity can be such an elusive thing, you know, insanity is real easy to peg and define, but, in, but sanity, like show me a, a sane person, that can be a tricky thing to do. Uh, it's like, you know, show me a mentally healthy person. Show me a person whose brain is balanced. If people's, if you're, taking medication for a chemical imbalance in your brain uh well show me a balanced brain like what does that look like if it, so uh you know maybe that everybody has some um, has to deal with reckon with this in some way and um so i mean reading those books reading people's accounts of their own experiences their own hallucinations their own delusions um you often see how normal a lot of their assumptions are. That they're often, what you're seeing is an exaggeration of what is actually a very normal, ordinary thing, or something that's a very common thing. That they're not coming at something from absolute outside. What they're doing is, is basically misunderstanding or exaggerating something that, we, that you and I do. And you say, oh, this is in me too. And... Uh, 
okay what does that mean um, so a lot of the stories I'm writing you know the characters are some characters are insane like you know there's there's some characters you know this is a person who's in a mental institution and for whatever purposes we're calling this an insane person but um, but the doctors also insane <laughs> They're not obvious that they're insane, but by the end, you should realize this is, no, this is, this. what is this? And that this need to analyze and understand insanity is, is in self, uh, there's something a little bit too insistent about it, a little bit too vehement about it. And then you start to say, wait a minute. Um, so yeah, exploring insanity um, is something that just never ceases to fascinate me and draw me in. Um, so... You know, and, and often I'll write about characters who are mentally troubled, or um, I, I'm, somehow I just ended up writing about homeless characters a fair amount of the time. And um, I'm not sure why I do that, but I guess I just their perspective is, in, is is seems very important to me somehow. It's a very ready way to take you out of your everyday commute when there's someone sitting there who's like whose experience of exactly the same circumstances that you find yourself in on a train or whatever. I live in New York, so I take the subway. And so you, you can see um, people dealing with this, you know, and, and trying to process this or just trying to handle this, these trains, this society, this crowd, this crush, this society, you know, or th these people who don't, who just see right through you and um, don't see you you know, or don't, you know, or who, who have to shut your suffering out. Um, that's a, that's isolation in a crowd. I think that's isolation in a big group of people. <clears throat> so, you know, I guess I got more and more interested in what separates people and, and the way people can turtle up and close in and insist on being right. Like, I know how it is. Because this is my life, and I planned it out, and I plotted it, and this is how it is, and it has to be this way. And um, you're like, nope, okay. Uh, like, it's you feel a lot of people are kind of like that. They're real mellow until you get to this one thing, and then suddenly those eyes get wild, and you're like, wait a minute, that's over the. There's the line. I found it. <laughs> there's the line with that person, and don't cross that one. Got it. And that's the moment when the person is kind of turns inward, and there's now you're dealing with their isolated self and you get a glimpse of that and an interaction with that and that's a very powerful place there's a lot of power in isolation that's the problem because when you're alone you're always right <laughs> yeah right you're, you're always right and so it's like and so you can be real strong when you're alone but when you bring that out into public then the, the sparks start flying especially when the other guy was just as isolated and weird as you and no, you're both always right. So then th that's real interesting. And I think when you look at our politics today and what the Internet does to people, you see a lot of people who are always right. And what happens when those people get together is, is, is very, I, I feel it's very, very familiar to looking to me after writing these stories. Hmm. Yeah, you're always right when you're actually here. Like uh, our friend Taylor um, has a comment. The Internet adds a really interesting layer to this idea of having the world reflect back on parts of yourself. We all create echo chambers so naturally it takes a conscious effort not to. Yeah, I'm, I agree, absolutely. And like, yeah, uh, you see, you know, like I can just see, sometimes you hear people talking or they give an opinion and you can just hear that's internet brain talking. And that internet brain is not good brain. 
it's not good. It's it's always a very shut in kind of isolated. And it's like you're not you're not hearing yourself speaking. That's the weird thing about the echo chamber. It's like you're only hearing yourself, but you're not hearing yourself hearing yourself. You're not actually oh, fully, you're not hearing yourself. Like you have to say this out loud in front of another human being who's going to go, what did you just say? And then you're like, oh, yeah, I'm a human and I'm alive and I live in a bigger world. <clears throat> the Internet is so good at simulating feedback that you feel like you're saying something that's gotten reinforcement. But that's because he went out and looked for it and cherry picked it. And and you, you know, you have like a focus group that just gives you back what you're saying. I, she's exactly right. And so, yeah, so that, that you do actually have to make that conscious effort. So it, it, it's weird because the, the social media is actually actually isolating us in a social looking way, but that isn't really social. And you always have to say, OK, how does this sound on the street? On the street, how does this sound? Because I don't, it sounds great behind my computer screen, but on the street, it doesn't work. The, the street level is always the, your litmus test. Like, you know, how does it sound there? Because if, if grandma doesn't like it and the guy at the laundromat doesn't like it, then it's not going to work. So uh, just remembering the street, that's, that's how I do it, is try to remember that. And Aaron mentions also being alone is very different now in the in, in the world of social media. Yeah, I agree. It's um, um, you feel less alone, but you are more alone. Um, you know, you're not getting the you're not forming a social group. You know, like for a great example. Well, I don't know. Great, it is. It feels great to me. But uh, you know, like. <laughs> Cons on online cons just didn't work for me. They didn't work. I needed to be in the same place with those people. I needed to be physically there at the con with other folks. And it just had to do with being in a, being in an environment where I don't have to explain who I am. Not in the sense that I'm famous, but in the sense that I write weird stuff and everybody around you writes weird stuff or they write that and they, they get it. They understand. They know you're not George R. R. Martin. They know you're not. It's like, well, when's your movie happen? Like, no. They understand. They get it. They know what writing is like. They know what publishers are like. They know what editing is like. They've gone through the same crap. They've had to deal with bad editors or good editors. They've had these experiences and reviews and all of that. And so you don't have all of this sort of, I have to explain myself. That can just fall away and you can just be who you are with these people and they're who they are. And you vibe with them in ways that are like nurturing and you don't even see it happening. Just like talking about just regular everyday stuff. Like, you know, your bad back or whatever, or somebody's, you know, it's like, you hear, but did you read this? It's like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. And you, or, you know, um, you know, like uh, when we get together at cons and new writers would come along. I mean, and at least in at ReaderCon, I remember that we had a pretty nice horror community at ReaderCon. And, you know, if you showed up and you were doing horror, you sat with us. It's like, come have lunch with us. Come and sit down. It's like, come and sit down. You're writing horror, come sit down. We'll talk with you. It's like, did you know this? Do you know that? Did you read this person? Read that person? Uh, you should talk to so-and-so. Oh, you have a story about that. This person's doing an anthology. Uh, you know, and then, <clears throat> you know, that was networking, but it was also just, it was, uh, we didn't know we were building a community. We were just hanging out. And, but, you know, it just, it, we then we all noticed that it feels really good. And then you've got, like, backup. You've got people, you know, and, like, you've got people. And you've got to be people for them, but then they're people for you. And yeah. and that 
you know, that makes you feel less alone in a way that's very concrete. So, I mean, the Internet's not a, not the villain. It's a tool, and it depends on how you use it. I mean, you might have followed what happened with Laird Barron lately. Did you read about that? or mm-hmm. Laird Barron, the writer. So he got sick. And but they posted about it on social media, and like they raised, he's he's a writer, so he has no insurance. He's got nothing. So and people just like they chipped in, and he got like a hundred grand in twenty four hours on a go GoFund, and he was blown away. He didn't expect it. And you know who's giving it to him is people who met him at cons, people who talked to him, people who knew him. They were fans, but they were also just people who knew him, and in, and they they liked him, and they didn't want him to to die, so they. <laughs> contribute and so and you know you've got you've got people like there's a network now, and that was social media that made us aware of that you know if you put that in a newspaper or a magazine it wouldn't we, the money wouldn't reach him in time so it, you know it, it, he shouldn't have had to deal with that money issue he should have just had to deal with not the, the not dying part which luckily he successfully managed um but you know that's an additional headache that, that we could take off his shoulders and so, you know, that's that's an important part of not being alone, and social media can help with that. But you got to ask yourself, is there anything at the bottom of it? Is there some sort of core connection that you're establishing, establishing with people? So, yeah, I mean, the, the you know, I, I've, I've learned so much from meeting other writers and other people at cons and other readers. Like, you know, Chris McLaren was just logging in and saying, I met him at a, I met him at Reader Con and we talked and I figured all kinds of stuff out talking with him because he's read a lot. And I've given him manuscripts to read and said, what did you think? I think he read, I gave him a manuscript to pass to see what he thought of it. So, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, writers, readers, people who've just read a lot, who can steer you towards stuff that may give you that spark of inspiration that you need. And that stuff, you just, you just don't quite, you just don't get it on social media. And, you know, social media has the sinister tendency, like Meta is really going doubling down on this now in particular, like where you are supposed to be like they want to replace you with a cartoon, I think, mm. like that Meta thing that they want to do. And it's like, I'm not a cartoon. <laughs> you know, I'm a person, okay. you know, I have lines of worry gouged into my face. The cartoon doesn't have those. You need to see these these gray hairs here. And you have to see how they keep growing the more you ask me to do at this job, you know, so like you need to see the effects of what you're doing to me. And a goofy cartoon character isn't going to do that. It's like you don't get to turn me into a cartoon. And so, you know, that's that's my worry. People don't seem to want to do that. I think people are kind of waking up a bit more about the the downside, the unreality of social media. but yeah, this this thing about not about seeming being more alone, but not not knowing you're alone, yeah. is um, we are more alone. We are working from home. We do have fewer social ties. You know, it's not like grandpa going off to the club or bowling or whatever. You're just like you're here, and your friends are on other states, and you see each other very rarely, and we're all too busy, or everybody's working too much already anyway. And <clears throat> if you're writing and working. You've got two jobs, and I guess if you're podcasting, then you've got a third job. Uh, and so, I, hey, yeah, so I that's, a lot. Better, I that's a lot, you know. So then, when's the 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 drift time? When do you just sort of sit and just like you sit in the boat and just like just you know you just watch the world go by and just just hang with people? And when you do it, you realize how nourishing that can be, and that you actually do need it. 
and like oh yeah we're humans and we do this and we just sit and vibe and it's a good thing um you know so like i was very that was the thing it was very easy for me to just like stick my head in the computer and leave it there and just like not get out and my wife is always after me it's like get the get out of that room you know <laughs> it's not a man cave i'm not in here with cigars and beer i'm sitting here like trying to work and like you know you have to like it's like you know you you know she just says we're, we're all dead anyway you know so like go go eat the pizza you know it's like it'll go do it so there's that and um but social media you put on a podcast not no no offense to podcast listeners but you put it on and you feel like you're not alone right yeah. and you know you are still alone you just don't feel it as much and these circumstances do make us more alone and we do feel the need for other people there's nothing it's only human to want that and so as i listen to podcasts all the time i listen to all sorts of audiobooks and whatever and you know but it, it's like um it can't be the it can't substitute it can supplement and it can extend but you, you do actually have to go out in the street and you have to know your neighbor and you have to know that if you, someone's breaking into your house, they're not going to ignore it, <laughs> you know, or, or if you're in the street, you know, lying their face down, they're not just going to step over you on their way to do, on their way to, 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 you know, file a report online or whatever. So, you know, that, that is so essential. And, you know, man, it's closing online only cons really just, just made that so very, very clear. Um, yeah, get together with folks in person. It just, it really helps. <laughs> It really does, and that's coming from me. I'm an isolator, so. Chris, <laughs> yeah. uh, comment. Okay, I that, talk that's back, to, talk podcasts back podcasts to podcasts when I want to, and at a point, a point but somehow never turns into a discussion. discussion. Yeah, Chris, I would. I, you should get help, Chris. I'm saying, I'm just. If you're talking back to podcasts, you should get help. <laughs> and also, I uh, also noticed that you teach as well. I, uh, yes. Learned, during your time teaching, what have you learned about yourself? <laughs> uh, I, I have much deeper wells of patience than I ever dreamed I could have. I have much more stamina than I thought I had. Hmm. Um, you know, if you told me beforehand what I was going to be doing in a day, I'd be like, no way. And uh, so I learned that about myself. There are other things you learn about yourself that aren't necessarily so nice, but then you work on those parts. Uh, you know, like, uh, it's like, don't challenge me. And it's like, well, you need to be challenged sometimes. If you're talking, if you're talking nonsense, then you need to be challenged. So, um, but yeah, I mean, what you learn, um, you know, I, like, I learned that I love my students. I don't, didn't expect that. Because, um, you know, it's not like, I mean, some of them are pretty rough around the edges really rough you know or they don't read and they don't but you know at the same time I, I just I'm in their corner and I want them to to succeed I want them to get out of whatever trouble they're in and into a better place and um, I've learned how hard that can be I've learned how how hard it can be when it doesn't work and you see people not work out and when you see people make it how important that can be you know, I was in school all my life. You know, I was getting a graduate degree. I, I always had teachers, and there were teachers who were crucially important to me. They're teachers I think about literally every day who helped me or who became friends. So many, and, you know, I don't know if I can be that for someone. I would like to be that for someone. 
Um, so what you learn about yourself, I'll give you an example. So Bartleby the Scrivener, you may know that story by um, Herman Melville. Um, you know, about a, a scrivener. He's a copyist. And this is 19th century. And he just refuses to work. And he gradually refuses to do more and more until he basically refuses to leave the office. Or indeed, he's not violent. He's not disruptive. He just, you ask him to leave and he says, I would prefer not to. You ask him to do work and he says, I would prefer not to. And his employer is baffled and is somehow disarmed by this and is not able to just fire him and throw him out. He wants to reach him or contact him or help him or something. So I'm talking about this story, and, um, you know, I'm a Melville scholar. I've read Melville. Anyway, one of my students says, maybe he can't read. Read my pre previous remarks. I'm a Melville scholar. I've read about it. And nobody ever came up with the idea that Bartleby couldn't read and that his copying was just like, just like drawing as opposed to actually understanding what he was copying. Maybe he can't read. And that taught me to shut the hell up and listen because other people are going to see stuff in there that's really there that you didn't see. You know, it's like that's a valid interpretation that I never saw and that my expertise does not consist in knowing better than my students. It consists on having certain, being a bit more skillful at doing something we're all capable of. And my job is to challenge them and to guide them so that they can to try to stimulate that and try to get that to happen and then to translate it into academic language so that they can get good grades and do well in school and because uh, I'm right it's all introductory level stuff I teach you know I teach community college in the South Bronx you know my students are coming in there because they want a job they're not coming in there because they want to read Shakespeare they will you well no they won't but they'll pretend they will they'll read a summary and they'll talk about it they'll be very interested in talking about it uh, and so it's, and the ideas will engage them and if you tell them okay Hamlet's father was killed by his own uncle and then he married his and they'll go that's messed up uh, and then they'll be into it you know like that situation is dramatic and they will get into it you just have to you know get them past certain barriers like the 16th century language or whatever, but then they're prepared to talk about the ideas and they have wonderful things to say. And so, yeah, just sort of, I hadn't, I didn't think I would relate to these students as much as I do. Um, I wouldn't think I would have learned as much from them as I have. Um, because it's the sort of thing you say, so I learn from my students. Like, no, I really learn from my students. I really learn a lot from my students. I feel like, I mean, again, it's a social thing. There is a connection that you establish. And when the circumstances force you to connect, create connections with people you wouldn't otherwise have talked to, you can learn a lot about just not even academic stuff, just like what the world is like, you know, the, the, the city I live in. I understand this city a lot better just because I have students who are from the Bronx, from from you know, from, you know, uh, and from other countries all over the world, you know, like African students, I got Middle Eastern students, students from all, you know, Dominican students, students from all over Latin America. And I learn about the world via what they bring into the room. And so that I didn't expect. So I guess I learned the limits of my own understanding <laughs> and the limits of my own uh, academic understanding 
um, from these students. And um, I've learned things that I'll take through with me to for the rest of my life from them. Um, I'm proud of my students. I like my students. And, uh, speaking of teachers, our friend Taylor is a teacher too. Uh, Something I've noticed as I got older is that silence is loud to me. I'm much more comfortable when some type of noise is in the background. Move to New York. You'll do fine. You'll do great. Yeah. Uh, no, I have, uh, Benjamin called it noise psychosis. Uh, it's like if there's any noise at all, I'm paying attention to that and not what's in front of me. So it's like I have to, I you know, I really have to like barricade out the noise to be able to, to function. So, like, I write with earplugs, you know, I, I sleep with earplugs. I go through a lot of earplugs. Uh, that's living in New York. Um, but, yeah, silence. It's, I know I crave silence, frankly. I, uh, I crave it. I yearn for it. Um, it would be, it's, I savor it whenever I get a chance to, to have some. You know, just when sometimes at 2 in the morning, the neighborhood quiets down, and you can just sit there and just be quiet, and it's very precious. But I, I understand that sometimes the silence can be oppressive uh two um the when the silence feels like absence when it feels like something's lacking when it feels like something's missing then it's then it's painful and difficult um you know but when it's an antidote to too much then i'm down with the silence more silence <clears throat> I find that I'm craving silence. I think, you know, Taylor, a bit of the opposite as I get older and obviously I'm mm -hmm. you know, a lot oh, yeah, older. Yeah. And Taylor, I'm, I'm, I'm craving that silence, that solitude. And especially you talk about writing, like I have forced myself to write in all kinds of different uh, venues, but mm -hmm. I prefer to be, you know, in my writing space, which is essentially here. Um, and if there's, you know, TV's on or something, I, I can write beside my wife while she's watching TV or whatever, which I try to do because you want to be in the same room with her. And, but but I, I need headphones on most of the time. And, mm -hmm. and to, to, you know, maybe I'm playing a soundtrack or something inspiring. But yeah, but my best <laughs> writing is is yeah, in my little corner here, just at the desk and, you know, everything's quiet. And maybe I'm, unless I can hear the birds chirping outside, that's it. Like, yeah, yeah just, just silence. And I, I find it um, really now nourishing to have those moments of silence because you don't realize how few moments you actually have where there's complete silence other than maybe sleeping. Um, yeah. You know, like, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually craving silence as I get older, so. It's precious for sure. <laughs> Milo uh, had a curious, what what's, what's something that your readers would be surprised to learn about you? Hmm. Surprised to learn about me. Um, hmm. Well, so I don't know what they know and what they don't know. Um, uh, surprised to learn about me. Um, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty boring. I'm pretty much like, um, uh, well, in the sense, you know, I don't, um, like, I don't go off on weekends and, uh, ski down mountains or anything. Um, I, uh, 
I guess a lot of people don't understand, don't realize I'm from California, or they don't see me as a per like I'm from Los Angeles. Nobody under nobody sees me as a typical person from Los Angeles, but that's not a really interesting thing necessarily. I guess. Um, well, I, I'm not as much of an athlete as I used to be, but I used to try to be reasonably athletic. I used to do Tai Chi every day, um, Chen style. Nick Mamatas, the writer, also does that. Uh, we've uh, we've sparred very slowly on at least one occasion. Um, anything else? Um, I don't know. Um, let's see. No, I can't think of anything good. I'm sorry. There's probably a good answer to that that'll come to me later, but I can't think of anything that would that jumps to mind right now. I'm sorry to say. Um, what uh, What made you move from California all the way to New, all the way to New York? School, school, and work. Um, this is where they accepted me. So um, this is where I went. So you know, I, I went to did all my all my college education uh, was was here in in. Uh, New York State, uh, and then uh, I got it. You know, I got my degree at NYU, and then I had to find a teaching job, and I applied everywhere because teaching jobs even then were scarce. So you know, like Beirut, I'll go. Uh, take sign me up. You know, Cairo, I'll go. If I have to dodge bullets, at least I'll be teaching. But um, in the end, I, my teaching gig turned out to be here at Ostos at, uh, at CUNY, which so I was in the city. Anyway, I didn't have to leave. Uh, and um, so that, they were the ones who, who took me. So um, it was kind of a choice in the sense that early on I'd applied my, more or less to East Coast schools just because I wanted to experience some, uh, another part of the world. I didn't want to just be in California the whole time. I love California, but um, I was just curious to see what life was like elsewhere and it just the east coast ended up being the place that grabbed me and and kept uh, giving me a kept offering me opportunities to, to go to school and get jobs and things so that's where i how i ended up living here um you know the new york i knew as a kid bearing in mind i'm old is uh, you know this was like the new york of like the french connection new york like this was this was the barney miller gritty grungy uh, broken um, taxi driver, New York. That was my image of New York. You know, bubbling potholes and steam bubbling, pouring out of the ground, and and, uh, and uh, everybody's got a revolver. Um, so that wasn't quite the New York I moved to. You know, I, I moved I moved into the city in '95, um, so I've been here for a minute, and uh, but it was already transmogrifying into the. A dystopia that it now is but the uh you know it was developing new flavors uh but um yeah so that that was um it was sort of destiny i guess that, that drew me to uh to this side of the world good to see other parts it's amazing how different just a state away can be just going from one state to another how different yeah can be. yeah it's it's true and then moving across the country it was it's very very different very very different indeed um, the you there's in the West. I, I don't know where are you guys, Steve. Where are you? I'm in New Mexico. All right. Okay. And and I, I, PL is that what I, should I call you? Yeah, I'm in Canada. Well, yeah, <laughs> Ontario, Canada. So Windsor on the bonjour uh, from Detroit. Oh, I don't speak. I'm, 
okay, I, I well, think it, but yeah. No, I'm just uh, across the way from Detroit. So. Right, right. Okay, so yeah, I mean, um, so I've only been to Canada a couple of times. Been to Toronto, sorry, Toronto. I know it's pronounced, uh, but the, um, the sixth. I know it's like it's. I just parenthetically, it was like it was so weird flying from New York. I was flew from LaGuardia, which at least they've re renovated it since. But at the time, it was sort of like a open air men's room, and then you fly into Toronto airport, and it was like arrive. It's like a, it's like arriving at Starfleet or something. Like everything was amazing. Uh, it's like, oh, this is what a nice airport looks like. Um, it was pretty nice there, yeah, I must say. I must say. Yeah, compared to LaGuardia, it's heaven. Um, JFK, but yeah, is so a, like, JFK is a nice airport. I like JFK. JFK is nice, that's true. But I was flying out of LaGuardia, not so now it's better. But certainly in New Mexico, you know, you, you've got room. Everybody's got room. There's so much room. And here you have no room. You got people on top of you and all sides of you, underneath you, and they're just they're on you all the time. And so, but if you're from anywhere west of the Mississippi, you're used to being able to. You've got, you've got a yeah exactly. You've got your zone. Another if in the when you're in the east, you start to feel a little. People are up in your space just a little bit. You know, it's like it just feels like they don't have your your. You're used to just having people not quite here you know they're a bit further back or they're in their cars and you're in your car everybody's in their box and, and you know so it can be it's very strange being in new york where everybody's just in your face but you know that's a, it's, a, it's such a drastic change uh i notice when i come back to california and visit because i come back my folks are in california and i'm always a little faster than everybody is i'm a little bit less patient than everybody is when I go to the store, it's like, you know, it's like we're, I'm moving down those aisles. I'm getting those groceries. I'm getting that stuff out of there. It's like, you know, check it through. It's like, let's get that stuff bagged, get it in the car. You know, it's like that sort of, I'm on the New York clock. Uh, and the California clock is much more, is a little bit, everything's different. Like traffic's different. It's still dense, but it's not, it's not bloodthirsty. It's just kind of there. And uh, it's just very different. And so, you know, I kind of, I kind of thematize that a bit in past. I kind of, um, the, the cult leader is a kind of, he's a very California kind of guy. He's like the sort of linen, wears all linen. He's got a Z bead right here, surfs, you know, he talks dismissively about people in the East. You know, it's like, well, they don't have our sense of space like we have out here. You know, like we have, you know, us Westerners, we have a better sense of space. Um, so, uh, little Coen brothers, he, uh, characterization there, but, um, yeah, and like being on the East Coast feels like you're in an older place. It, it's weird because you know, like there have been Europeans in New Mexico and Mexico from and, and California, you know, under the King of Spain for a long time. But there's you know, Los Angeles is still a very young city, whereas you know New York is old. Like you know, um, and so you feel the history around you a bit more, and that's intriguing and interesting. That was part of the appeal, I think, is everything was so new in the in the west that i was curious to see what it was like to live in a place that was a bit older but still in the country so yeah very different very different indeed and even like you know new mexico and it's not like arizona and arizona is not like california they are different very, very different what was it like during the pandemic and lockdowns being on top of everybody below and sides it's weird because like you're on top of everybody but you're also not allowed to talk to them or interact with them it's very strange I mean, what happened with me was that we just, this was where we didn't have any online teaching at school before COVID. 
and COVID basically forced online teaching on us. We had to we uh, we were my wife has health issues. She's got she's got disabilities, and I was debating whether I should keep going to school because I don't want to bring anything home, and because she's not. This was before the vaccines. You know, this was the beginning. Remember then, yeah. right? And I was thinking, you know, maybe I'm going to have to pull out or do something. I don't know, because I don't want to bring a deadly disease back home to kill my wife. And like within a week, though, they'd already basically, they'd gone from talking about maybe having some cancellations to saying, we're now fully online. And I was like, Psh! so we had to pivot mid-semester. And we've not, even now, we haven't gone back to fully in person. It's about like half my classes are online, the other class are in person. And so all day is this under lockdown. This is my day. Screen. So, you know, I'm already in the room writing a lot of the time. And now I'm in here all the time interacting with the screen all the time. And, I mean, the one thing, you're in New York, so food delivery is amazing, right? You just... You know, I can just get anything delivered, and they just they drop it on the on the front porch, and leave, and then you go out, and you scurry out and get it safely. So that made COVID real easy to deal with in that sense. Um, but it is very strange. Every you could feel everybody was at home around you. They weren't going to work anymore. The streets were silent except for sirens. That's what you heard all day. Sirens all day. It was very, very sobering, and it's like that was that was always something there in the background that would keep bringing it home to you, like, "Hey, I'm at home, fooling around," and think, but you were hearing those sirens outside. You're like, "That's why you're at home, dumbass." It's because, um, so you know, it, this was not a, a hard place to be because, again, you can, I can, I do my groceries. I want three minutes. I'm at the store. So if you're willing to wear a mask and go at off hours and so forth, that was feasible. So, but yeah, um, remember there used to be the thing people would do, they clap out their windows or make noise as a way of, like at a certain time of day to sort of salute the, the healthcare workers and the ambulance drivers. So I remember that. And so there was, there, that was the one thing. There was a sense we were all in something. There was one thing we were all in. We're all going through it. And it's like, didn't matter who you were. didn't matter what your background was. COVID doesn't care. It'll kill you too. So you, you, it'll kill anybody. So there was, there was a sense too that um, you, you know, you appreciated it when you saw people masking up and everybody was mad when you didn't, when they saw people who weren't masking, you could see all these looks. And, um, but yeah, there was a feeling of that, that it did oddly bring us together in our collective isolation i guess if that makes sense and our mm -hmm. that we were all going through it together so there was at least that and there were these gestures like clapping at the window a way of trying to bridge that gap so you know i went from never using zoom for like casual phone calls to using zoom all the time it was the only way i could see my family they're on they're three thousand miles away yeah. so that's the only way i could see them when it was christmas was like this you know, uh, I never missed a Christmas at home, but did that year. So um, this was, in, in, in some ways, it was a lifesaver in that sense. It was, a, you know, that it meant that we didn't lose touch with folks. But um, 
so I think in New York it wasn't this, it was in just being here in, in a, such a dense place it made it a bit easier but um, it also made it more I mean after all it's a dense place so that disease is it just just rockets right through the city and so once it shows shows up if you get one person on a train car that's 70 people have got it and they're all taking it to their train cars and their taxis and their whatever so it, you know the, the threat here was very real like people were really People were going like those sirens were going. You knew it was happening. That's a somber note, but there it is. Um, uh, Chris, uh, Canada represent in between <laughs> Toronto and where PL is now. Well, uh, my God, I know so, we've we've kept. Oh, I'm sorry, PL. Go ahead. No, no, I was I was gonna say. So he's somewhere like Londonish, um, you know, somewhere around there. So gotta hopefully uh, we gotta hook up sometime, my friends. So. Yeah, you should. I'm down. Uh, I'm, I have family all over, and I'm always going one way or the other. So hopefully we can meet up sometime. So you see that? You meet, you meet in real life. That's what yeah. it's all about. That's what it's all about. Well, I got, the time always flies, and the time gets away from us pretty quickly here, so mm -hmm. we don't want to keep you too much longer. I did have one more question for you. Okay. And that is, what was your first job? Depends on what you mean by job, but... Uh, you know, I, I really did the lemonade stand in the front yard thing. I actually did that. Um, but if you want a job job, I think my first formal job was actually working retail in a bookstore. Um, you know, that was, that was a minimum wage, nine to five. And uh, I don't know how people do it. I was a terrible employee and they got rid of me quick. Uh, but uh, I sucked. Uh, you know, it was just, uh, I don't know how people manage to man a register for nine hours a day. I took every pretext to go to gift wrapping because that was a nice peaceful place over here where you could just peacefully wrap your packages and so forth. And that was fine. So that, yeah, that was my first job. And I, uh, it, it bred into me a deep respect for anybody who's got to sit there punching buttons and, and, and taking people's money and not punching them, uh, which I think takes a certain amount of fortitude that I might not have had. Um, so I didn't deck any old ladies. I don't want you to think I was taking pokes at anybody, but there were times it was tempting. So um, yeah, that was my first gig. That was my first job. Yeah, it was book related. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't envy anybody with that gig. That is tough. It's a tough one. Yeah. But I want to thank you for taking your Friday night to hang out with us and spend more time in front of the screen. We, we really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you very much. No, it was awesome. I enjoyed it very much. Awesome. And uh, before we go, for anyone looking for you or your work, where's the best place to find you or where they can buy your books? Um, let's see. So Pissed, I think, should be available. If you just go to the Clash website, you can pre-order this one. Uh, medium length. Um, this guy you can order from Paul Grave or on Amazon. It is a Paul Grave book, so it's going to cost it's going to cost too much. But if um, I'm on Twitter... And what I've been doing is if people are interested in the book and they're not interested in paying a university press price, they can contact me and I can at least send you a PDF of it. And I, don't, I won't ask you for anything for that. I'll just give it to you. Um, for books that are out of print, too, it's the same thing. If I have a PDF of it and you DM me, I can just send you the PDF and then that'll work. Uh, but as far as my, my work is concerned, I have a, a website. I think I, I think I've paid for it this month. I better. But michaelcisco.com is there. Um, but yeah, if nothing else, um, I, I don't do anything on Facebook. 
um, and my Instagram is lame, but um, and barely visited. But so Twitter, I think, is a is a is a pretty straightforward place to reach me. Um, you know, for good or ill, I'm still on bleepity beep and bleeping Twitter. Uh, but you can contact me there. And um, yeah, I mean, I want people to read my stuff. So if you want to want me to hook you up with a PDF, I will get it to you as best I can. So uh, that's a, that's right now. That's the best place to find me, and um, I'm doing stuff to promote the book. So I mean, I'm doing readings and so forth around. Again, that's on my Twitter page too. Of various events I'm doing in the vicinity. I'm trying to see if I can get some West Coast events lined up uh, too, if possible, because I always go back there at least twice a year to see my folks. So I might be able to do something on the West Coast. I would like to do that very much. Um, yeah. So that that's a an, an, uh, developing story. Uh, as as we say. Nice. And uh, PL, before we go, where's the best place for everyone to find you? Uh, normally beside you and Taylor on uh, page chewing. Um, that's that's probably the, the, the place you can find me on screen. Um, before we go blog, where I'm an assistant editor, and Steve's a blogger, and Taylor's also assistant editor, so my review's there. And on Goodreads, of course. Um, for the books, uh, www.peelstore.com. That's all about the John Kingdom saga. Um, Two books out, The Last of the Atlanteans and The John King. The third one, Lord and King, is coming in the next little while. So that's exciting. And uh, like Michael, I mean, I have Instagram and Facebook, but yeah, I'm, 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 I, and I'm trying to work on getting better on spreading out my social media platforms in terms of how much time I devote to each one, getting more even with that, even distribution. But really, true, Twitter is my preferred uh, mm -hmm. social media platform, and that's where you can find me at Peel Start Writes. DMs are open. Message me. You want to talk about literature, writing, business-related stuff. You know, yeah, um, that's the best place to get a hold of me. Uh, big shout out quickly to Before Go Blog and the wonderful Beth Tabler, our fearless leader. And um, yep, it's it's uh, it's it's been great speaking to and meeting Michael, and hoping to get to read some of his books in the future. And yeah, thanks thanks so much for coming. Yeah, the same. My my heartfelt thank to both, but thanks to both you, PL and and Steve. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. Well, thank you again, and thanks everyone for coming by and interacting with us in the chat. It's always a great time. So, hope everyone has a great weekend, and we'll talk to everyone soon. Bye.